Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Alex, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Will? Doing great. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining Russ and I today. Um, do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Yeah. Um, uh, well, right now I teach at the University of Colorado Boulder in a program called the Herbst Program uh, for Engineering, Ethics, and Society, basically teaching humanities to engineers. Um, uh, the person who endowed our program deemed them too inhumane or inhuman, one or the other. Um, and, uh, you know, prior to that, I was sort of in academic wasteland, popping from job to job, you know, trying to find something more secure. I've been here for about three years. I did my graduate work at uh, Tulane University. Before that, I was at St. John's College. I did an MA there, and I was uh, at the University of Connecticut before that. I did a BA in political science. My, my PhD is in philosophy, but I work on Plato and the history of uh, political philosophy. Um a lot of my work is concentrated on Plato in relation to pre-Socratic philosophy and poetry. I've written on Homer, Hesiod, uh, Heraclitus, Parmenides, um, uh, and I've I wrote a book on Plato's Parmenides, and uh, I've got a book coming out soon on Plato's trilogy on the question of science or knowledge, uh, Sophist, Statesman, and Theaetetus. And um, but I've I've been sort of branching out a bit and doing some some other things, more modern things a little bit lately, uh, just as my interests have, have changed. Got it. Got it. I, I want to talk a little bit first about, you know, progress and, and knowledge of the future and how conceptions of that have changed over time. Can you talk a little bit about how, how Plato viewed, you know, the, the concept of the future and, and knowledge and, and how that might be surprising to kind of modern day people? Yeah. So it, it's, it's, we tend to think of science as progressive, right? And and it's easy to see that as a distinctively modern concept. Um, but there is a kind of progressivism in Plato, but it's not social or political. Um, and the reason for that is that the sort of social or political sphere, the political community, is ultimately governed by unwisdom, right? Or, or irrationality. To say nothing of necessity, uh, it putting impositions on the ability of a community to deliberate well about things, right? So there's a sort of intractable fundamental opposition to good thinking, right? To put it most simply. Nevertheless, there is a kind of progress that an individual can undergo, provided they have the right circumstances. They can sit and think and learn more and and become wiser, hopefully, and and make some progress in, in wisdom. The distinctively modern notion of progress, which is what we typically mean by progress, is social or political, uh, as well as scientific project, is what we know as a community. That's a distinctively modern uh, idea. Um, as far as in natural science, it certainly has a, a root in Bacon and Descartes. Um, I think it in a way, as a political matter, it goes back to Machiavelli. Machiavelli often looks like a guy who's just trying to revive a sort of Roman excellence or Roman virtue, um, but it's contrived, right? It's through your own sort of 
social engineering, right? Now, uh, just to put it that way, I think you automatically have a kind of bias against Plato and the ancients, right? Because, well, we have progressed, haven't we, right? We're largely more peaceful. We know quite a bit more. We live longer. So that seems to be a good case against him on the one hand. On the other hand, it's not clear that the average individual knows more. Right. Um, the average individual has more sophisticated opinions and gives more sophisticated explanations, even when they don't really know what they're talking about. Right. Think of the way that evolution, for example, or my evolution or, or whatever, it's used in a very sort of haphazard and it's often used uh, as an explana- explanatory tool without going through the scientific method. Right. And there's millions of examples of these. So. It's not clear that the average individual is any smarter, though they certainly have the trappings of intelligence and they feel very good about themselves, you know, in this regard. Um, I think the, the, the area in which we're, we're certainly at a disadvantage is that we're often unable or unaware of how to deal with those problems, right? So we live in an era now of fake news, right? And, and, uh, an era of, of, you know, pseudoscience, right? Or, or, you know, the overreach of scientists, right, trying to to sort of lay claim to greater and greater authority. Um, I don't think, I think because we're so used to thinking of science in an empirical manner and progressive manner and things just keep getting better and better and better, we're not well prepared to think about um, the obstacles, right, to a scientific society. And possibly the deepest thinker on these obstacles are these ancients who we're not inclined to make science a sort of social progress, uh, a social project of, of progressive science, but we're rather inclined uh, to a kind of traditionalism or conservatism in the laws, right? Be careful about changing the laws. If people get too used to this, right, then everything will be out, right? You need to have a certain reverence and habituation and, and you have to be accustomed to it. And so the ancients, if they did view science as progressive, it was on the individual level, right? And they thought very deeply about this, as I think we'll get into uh, a little later. But that would be the primary distinction between them as far as the concept of progress is concerned. And I think as, as should already be aware, um, it should already be evident, uh, um, I'm very much biased towards Plato on these on these grounds, right? I think he's well more aware of, of the prob- our problems, our political and social problems, than any modern thinker uh, really was, precisely because they were so concerned with founding this world, not with criticizing it. I'm talking about early modern thinkers here. So I, I'm curious, is it something where, you know, as we build up knowledge over time, like just the pile of things you can know just gets so big that if you have to start deferring to experts at some point. Whereas if you're in the time of Plato, you know, calculus has not been invented. So there's no way like, you know, a high school student at the time could, could you know, get to this point where they could, you know, do differential equations and all, all these different things. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, there, we have a kind of luxury uh, today. I mean, we you can subsidize the freedom needed I mean, almost everybody goes to college, whether through loans or their parents or, or they go to a, you know, a free, you know, community college or something like that. They, they have a kind of subsidized leisure. You know, the ancients were very clear about this, right? You, you need to have leisure. That's the first goal in life. And that means getting out of necessity. And then the question is, what do you do with your leisure? And, and the highest end of leisure is, is to learn, right? And obviously you're living in a very, you know, archaic time, by which I mean, not 
you know, old, right? It's old and, and there's slavery and there's all sorts of constraints. We don't have the benefits, you know, uh, the freedom that you can have. So, you know, you can go and, and you can be born dirt poor, get into college, get a bunch of student loans, you know, major in, in philosophy and spend those four years, go on to grad school and, and accrue even more debt. And then you can, you know, after 15 years of this or whatever, you can go out and not get a job. And then, then you got to pay, you know, then, then you're going to get, unless, you know, you know, there's a sort of student loan forgiveness, but uh, you're, you're basically screwed at that point. But that was not even an option before. And, you know, speaking personally, um, you know, in grad school, I knew there was always a possibility. And for many years, it looked like an inevitability, right? Not getting a job. And, uh, but still you have those years, you have that time. So there's, there's certain sort of, um, you didn't have the time, but I think it, it goes more fundamental than that, right? Which is that there is in the world, in nature itself, if you want to put it in the strongest possible terms, nature itself resists this kind of this kind of activity, right? Necessity gets in the way, not just with death, but you got to pay the bills, right? You got to you got to somehow find a way. And if you're rich, great. If you don't need much, also great, right? But if you you know need certain comforts, and you also you're gonna have to work for a living. You're gonna have to spend your time. Um, doing that right now the modern response to this was like you think that's nature uh, no i'm going to overcome this right um, and that's where science and technology has been remarkably successful they've taken care of a lot of these creature comforts and automation and machines and and all all sorts of of obstacles are out of the way and, and we can to a greater degree afford that kind of freedom, right? And when you look at something like, you look at what Marx is, is arguing and, and, you know, he's, he's showing you that if you do this right, you could, you could actually have all your necessities taken care of and live whatever life you want. You should have been a bit more pushy. You should be a philosopher all the time, maybe, but there is that. This is to say nothing of the fact that for Plato, for many ancient and medieval thinkers, it's not even clear that every person is fit for this kind of life, right? Which is a, yet another natural obstacle. Not just the fact that necessity is in the way, but also maybe you're not well suited for it, right? That's another sort of consideration that the moderns who are more inclined to view all human beings on much more equal terms are are, are going to push against, right? Makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure that answers your question, but there's some thoughts. <laughs> Absolutely. Russ, did you want to jump in there? Yeah. Um, I I, I was just thinking about what Alex said in terms of how the modern individual might not know much more. And I think in part that, you know, you could break that down into two ways. Well, first would be the modern citizen in many ways is not expected to understand science, but simply to follow it, right? That you know, you're told that if you're not a scientific expert, you aren't even supposed to, quote unquote, do your own research, right? You're supposed to pretty much just take it at face value, what they're telling you. And that goes even um, to the point that even if you're a scientist in one field, people will tell you, stay in your lane. Like you shouldn't be taking that knowledge to another, that statistical or technical knowledge to another field and opining on that, right? So they'll police the borders there. But then even if you take it to the point of, um, you know, okay, we're talking about scientists within a single field, um, the progress of modern science depends to a large extent on faith, essentially faith that the work of other people in your field is valid, 
that they haven't just made it up. But, you know, now we're starting to learn, you know, with the replication crisis and, and scientific misconduct that, you know, oftentimes that faith is not warranted. So, um, you know, I, while it's certainly true, therefore, that, you know, science has enabled us to live longer lives and uh, certainly richer lives, um, you know, it's, it's a very interesting point that when it comes to maybe the progress of human knowledge on an individual level, we're, we're actually not doing very well, as uh, might be immediately obvious uh, from perusing social media. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's a number of things I, I just want to jump on right there. And I mean, well, one, the faith thing is obviously an issue, right? But the the biggest faith, right, is the faith that, that whatever it is we develop is going to be good, right? And that's that's highly questionable. I mean, especially now, I, you know, maybe, you know, a generation or so ago when like iPhones were coming out, like, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, people were just, wow, this is amazing. And now you look at it and all that you hear about is, is addiction to technology, right? And social media is, it was supposed to be this great democratic thing. It was a little too democratic, it turns out. And, and it's gotten, you know, turned into a cesspool, right? There's this, the, this is where I think the, the real faith comes out and, and it's 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 really kind of shocking when you really think about it, right? When you look at a thinker like Hobbes, for example, right, and, and Locke, they're saying, look, state of nature was such that you wanted to leave it, right? You wanted to make your future better. And so, you know, it's, to a certain extent, human life and human industry is devoted to constantly improving technologically and then financially and so on and so forth. And now what's the ideal? What's the end goal? If you're thinking in terms of progress, the end goal has to be unknowable, right? If, if you could know the end goal, right? If you could have that, you just have some sort of absolute standard. And we can, you know, talk about certain immediate goals, right? Like, oh, it'd be nice if we could, you know, less reliant on fossil fuels for X, Y, Z reason or, or whatever it is. But you have no idea where that's, what that's going to bring to you, right? If science can't be finishable, right? If science is always progressing, then you you never have that kind of absolute certainty, right? Resting at the end. Now, when you really wrap your head around that faith, right? That, that scientific progress will lead to greater happiness. That's really shocking. And, and, and it's, and it's really, I mean, you're, you're essentially saying you're going blind, right, into a world in which you'll be increasingly more reliant on technologies and on certain, on certain um, you know, systems that you have no idea if they're going to be good, right? So, so one example I like to use is I think it was just last winter, there was that cold snap that went through Texas, right? And the power grid went down and most new houses don't have fireplaces anymore. So what would you have done in Texas if suddenly the temperature dropped like that? You'd be like, hey, it's getting pretty cold. Let's get some firewood. Put on your jacket. Oh, oh we're running out of firewood. Go get some more. What happens when the heating system goes down, right? I mean, old people die, right? You're, you're, you're completely because you're dependent on that. So you lose in self-reliance and virtue, but you also become much, much more susceptible, Right. And so there's there's quite a trade-off here, right? The world in which you live with nature as only somewhat beneficent, right? And somewhat antagonistic. And you just kind of live knowing that and you prepare for those contingencies, versus the world in which you fight a, a sort of um 
inimical nature. And therefore you develop these systems that you then rely on and then they shut down and you have nothing, right? You lack, you have no sort of, sort of anything to, to rely on. Great example of this is from Plato's Lachis, the beginning of the dialogue. Uh, these fathers go to these generals, Lachis and Nicias, and they say, Hey, uh, we saw this guy. He's got this newfangled weapon, this new technological weapon, right? And and it's great. He did this display. And we're wondering, would this be good to make our, our sons courageous? Because our fathers were courageous and we're not. And we want to make sure our sons are better than us and we don't screw up like our, our parents did. And what happens, Lachis tells the story. He's like, yeah, I saw that guy in war. And what happened is, is he's doing his display. The ship went by. His crazy, you know, barbed weapon got stuck in the netting of the ship, and it was pulling him, and he wouldn't let go. He kept holding on because he knew if he lost this, he'd be screwed, right? He'd have nothing. He didn't know how to fight as a man, as a, as a naked man-to-man, right, which is what fighting ultimately ends up. But he was relying on that that sort of technology, right, on that. that that's, in a way, the position we're in right now, right, which is – I don't know how to farm. You know how to farm, Will? Ross, I no, I mean, you know, I don't know how to farm. If everything goes to hell, I mean, I've thought about this. I'm going to have to go raid some of the cornfields. Cannibalism is an option. I mean, there's not much you can do, right? And that's because we've convinced ourselves it's better to rely on those systems, specialize scientifically. That's a massive faith. And what, what have you given up for that faith and for that comfort? You've given up on your own individual excellence, your own individual self-reliance, right? And that's that's a, that's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse because all we do is keep making it more sophisticated, less comprehensible by the individual and making us, turning us into more, you know, pasty, pale, in a, unable to do anything because everything's been sort of outsourced to technology. Isn't it almost sounds to me, though, at some level, uh, what you're talking about is, is a failure of progress in that since the 1970s, you, you know, like this this slow decay of state capacity, of ability uh, of us as a society to do things and build things uh, well um, ha- has created these conditions where suddenly we have to worry about these things. Like it's something it, it almost seems like, you know, uh, the, the state, uh, a world where Texas can't keep the power on is not the same government that uh, built the, you know, the Manhattan Project. Project and the Apollo program at some level. So, so uh, I don't know. Can you talk about that tension a little bit? It almost seems to me like part of the problem is is uh, because technological progress has slowed at some level outside of these narrow boxes like the iPhone and things you mentioned earlier. Um, that that does force us to at some level uh, prepare for a world that makes us go backwards, makes us have to know how to be uh, self sustaining and you know farm ourselves and things like that. I mean, the big shift in this, uh, I would go a little earlier, is is really World War One, right? It's it's a war that was prepared for as though it were like one of these old fashioned wars, and it was just like a meat grinder of just bombs and shelling and and gas. I mean, it's it's frightening when you read this stuff, and it's uh, you know, um, I mean, I would even say, you know, great, the Manhattan Project, where we were all sort of. Uh, you know, it was, it was, you know, or NASA, early NASA, right, is another example. People, you know, this is moments of ingenuity and, and yeah, but, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain psychological tick that wants to go, that makes a person want to go to Mars, right? You know, there's a certain, you know, 
reluctance to put your own citizens' lives online, your own children's lives online, that makes you want a nuclear weapon or drones, right? Um, this all speaks to a desire to escape these necessary constraints. And so, I mean, when you're talking about progress, scientific progress, it's not enough to just progress scientifically and to know more, to be capable of more. You also have to know how to use it well, right? Uh, and in addition, it's not clear that 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 mindset is altogether healthy, right? As I've portrayed it going back to Hobbes and Locke, right? This is a desire to escape the natural world. Is that a, is that as a fundamental human drive, a healthy drive? Like to, to feel utterly not at home in the world so that you try to escape it? Um, I mean, there's a reason that this stuff started in, in Christian Europe, right? It's a, a kind of desire. You read Bacon, right? It's a desire for heaven on earth, right? That That's a very otherworldly escapist desire, except the promised land is, you know, or the, you know, heaven is not to be found in the afterlife, but in this world, in the future, in progress, right? So, I mean, there, there's not much you can do about this. You can't like get rid of this project and, and that would be to be insensitive to the real benefits it's brought. But it does mean that it's, it's a constant struggle with every generation to remind oneself that this is not a fully human life, right? This is not a fully, you know, happy, flourishing human life, right? But it requires attending to certain other parts of your soul than the one that wants life to be easier, more comfortable, longer, and all that, right? That that wants consequence and and and, and sort of real, strong, higher level goals than these low level common goals. That that's an interesting that's an interesting point you just made. That you know, even though we must acknowledge the benefits of modernity you know, we should, you know, remain aware that it's somehow not a real human life. So I want to, I want to ask you some questions about that, because, you know, I could see an argument from the other side that basically, you know, this is the culmination of the most human things, right? We reach modernity through, you know, this desire to conquer nature, to use and develop tools, right? So the, the economic side of man, and then also through, you know, the, the military political side of, you know, competition between states, forcing us to develop better weapons and new forms of political organization. So in some ways, this is the culmination or the fulfillment of human nature. And even as, you know, we see new technologies like social media, it's not like we're learning new things about about humans that we didn't know before, you know, like that they, um, you know, they like being cruel to each other, for example, like we already knew that, right? So in some ways, this is like the most human possible time or the most consistent possible time with human nature. Yeah, I mean, maybe one way of putting what you're saying is, is that, you know, there's there's two ways to view the modern turn, right? Um, was it the sort of human being finally coming into their own, right? Was man finally coming into his own or was it rather a sort of lowering? And this is a difficult thing because, right, this incredible reliance on your own powers is a massive centering of man at the center of the world, right? And and nature as a kind of obstacle and 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 moving God out of the out of out to the periphery, if if not you know giving him the boot altogether, right? In in terms of your specific premises of the project, 
And that's, this is a difficult question to forge. I mean, I'm inclined to think that while it did center the human being, right, it completely erased any question about whether there are any sort of superhuman standards, right? You know, in throwing out God and making man the center, it also throws out nature, right? And this is the difficulty, right? So this is, so, you know, you have as part of the air of the ancient tradition is the medieval tradition, right? Which is deeply bound up with religion and, and, you know, the, you know, the rule of philosophers in Plato gives way to the rule of priests in the medieval era. And this is in a way a problem, right? So that's one way to sort of solve this question. And when you go back to the ancients, you see that they knew what, you know, science and technology could do. There are all sorts of allusions to this in Plato and Aristotle, um, but they were still reluctant uh, about it. And they saw that, that there are, there's, Nature provides us with an array of human beings, or at least to different ends or goals, and that there's this kind of heterogeneity in these ends, and we need to be sensitive to these in political life, right? One of the ways to think about this is in terms of Aristotle's ethics. There are three peaks to virtue uh, in Aristotle's ethics. One is justice, which is sort of equally accessible to all human beings. Another is greatness of soul or magnanimity, which is this sort of crown of the virtues, right? It, it takes, you've got everything if you've got that. You've got courage, you've got, you know, this, that, and the other. And then there's the intellectual virtues, which are both practical and theoretical. And so you might have a knowing statesman as one ideal and then a philosopher, you know, a complete philosopher, somebody like Thales, but really, you know, think about somebody like Socrates there. And one way to think about what modernity did was less so in Machiavelli, but increasingly when you look at people like Hobbes and Locke, is to take those two higher higher goals and throw them out the window, right? Greatness of soul and, and theoretical virtue, and focus on human equality and on making human beings, you know, all satisfied in the ways in which we are equal, the necessities and 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 wanting that comfort. And if we could make politics do that, it would be far more easy. One way to think about it is in terms of a kind of reductionist physics, right? If you can reduce everything to atoms, right, then you've got something really easy to work with, right? As opposed to looking at a tree and then looking at a fox and saying, I don't know what, I mean, these are just different things, right? If you can reduce them to the same thing and then you're working with genetics and stuff, you've got something to work with, right? Uh, politically, they did the same thing. And Again, remarkably powerful, right? You can build whole systems of government that are, you know, that work here, that work there, that, that are remarkably sort of um, uh, adaptable to different times and places, but deeply unsatisfying. That's, that's the difficulty is you got rid of the high and you made it work for a lot of people and you made people sort of content or complacent at best but maybe also really unsatisfied. And this is, I think, a real problem. When you look at people looking to social media to vent and you look at, at people looking, picking a fight somewhere or, you know, they're, they're really struggling, trying to find within this world that provides so much for them the thing that it doesn't provide, right, which is a sense of meaning and purpose. And that that was thrown out with the by this particular understanding of nature as a kind of enemy, and it was thrown out when you got rid of religion, right? Or you subordinated religion to sort of more utilitarian ends. Um, yeah. So, yeah, man's at the center, but man's far less attractive than he used to be. 
what do you think has caused this this loss of meaning? You mentioned a couple of things there, but can you talk a little bit about that more? Is it truly just a, the story about the decline of religion and and belief in, in a higher power, or is it something else that's going on, or just like lack of struggle or something like that? Yeah, I mean, so maybe just to put this in a in in a it might be a lack of struggle. I think courage is obviously the virtue that gives you most immediate meaning because it has the most on the line, right? Uh, you you stand to die, and so people look for things to really fight for. And so this is why you see, you know, you know, for example, during the pandemic, right? It's no secret, right? You're, the reason that the Black Lives Matter in part stuff really took off all of a sudden in that moment is because people were trapped inside. They were living like scared little animals, right? And there was something there out there worth fighting for. And the frustration and the, I think the sense of a lack of a real endeavor led to this outburst of a longing for a just cause worth fighting for. And that's where you see some of the excesses there, right? Some of the, the you know, uh, it was mostly peaceful, as we all know, but right the 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 rioting, the burning, the tearing down statues. They wanted something that they could fight for. Um, when we don't attend to those sorts of things, and we don't we don't give that an outlet, it becomes unpredictable, right? And and then so then all right, what's the cause? I think it's it's this sort of hands on relativistic liberalism, right? Remarkably neutral, right? And that neutrality, for a while, you don't really notice it because there's a kind of common culture, right? Uh, some would say it's, oh, well, we were a Christian, you know, European nation. Some would say, well, it was white supremacists. However you interpret that culture, it was more monolithic, right, than it than it is now. As that neutrality is, is worn down and as, you know, you bring in different populations because you are open, right, you end up with this lack of any kind of purpose. And that starts to affect how we understand that neutrality because you can't be neutral and tolerant of everything right and so a lot of issues end up coming down to these culture clashes and it's as a result of our political mismanagement right uh, a failure of common vision but rather an ever increasing push for greater and greater neutrality as a result of that you see both sides now deeply unsatisfied with the neutrality Right. One side says, no, you, you've gone too far with throwing out our tradition, with calling everything racist. Well, the other side says, no, you've gone too far with free speech, with freedom of expression. Right. Certain things people need to be just persona non grata anymore. And that's that's all of a sudden illiberalism arises on both the left and the right, precisely by an inability to. You can say judiciously manage our freedoms, right? And, and be aware and make the case for a kind of common culture. This is what we're living with now as a result of, 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 of this political system being managed poorly by those in power. Yeah, that I mean it's it's undeniable, right? To to you can point to so many statistics that you know, suicides in general have been up for twenty or so years, especially among teens. Um, you know, as we've discussed before on this show, you know, obesity is way up over the past 50 years and male labor participation it has been trending downwards. Um, so, you know, you can point to some real trends here. But, you know, I do want to push back on this idea of meaning in religion, because I don't feel like just because I live in a modern liberal society that I can't have faith. You know, I go to church every Sunday. I, you know, I, I'm an active member of my church. You know, I, um, 
just because I live in the United States of America doesn't mean I can't believe in God. Right. <laughs> and, um, yeah, you know, know, even from the point of view, like beyond faith, you know, I, you can still find meaning in your local community, you know, whether it's the people you work with or your neighbors or your friends. Um, I don't see why we should all be looking to our national politics, right. For meaning or for answers or to tell us what a religion should be. No, and I don't. I don't. I, we should. We should be careful not to equate. You know what we're referring to as a kind of common culture with religion. Obviously, religion is is the age old source of this unifying, you know, unifying thing. And, and to a certain extent, that might be what what might be actually necessary, right? And it, the. I mean, you know, when you start talking about these questions, you start realizing you start running into some pretty radical positions, right? I mean. Uh, you could easily find yourself maybe as an int- integralist, right? If you're if you're Catholic, in dancing around these questions, right? Or God forbid. you know, you could go full full Aristotle and say, well, we need you know an arist. You know, it's really difficult, and I'm not sure. You know, I look, I'd be a you know, I'd be the greatest statesman of all time if I could solve this problem. You know, intellectually, it's 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 theoretically you can point to the issue to practically solve it. I have no idea, right? But I, I mean, I, I would say that you know, it's it's great you can find outlet in your smaller uh, communities, but you know that liberal neutrality, right? Increasingly, increasingly has asserted more and more sort of he- hegemonic force, right? Um, when it was just a matter of the federal government being kind of hands off and then the states sort of manage their own affairs, fine. But that's not what's happened, right? Uh, I mean, just to looking at the history of the courts, what has the court done? It is it is increasingly forced a, a more and more morally neutral standard, right? To the point that people are forced on the smaller level to regulate their lives and and to think and act right in accordance with these these sort of these principles of neutrality these liberal principles right and that's that's where it seems like maybe one way to think about that is is that sort of liberal neutrality is ultimately not neutral right it demands acquiescing right it demands that now it requires on on one moment of thinking of it it requires supplementation right it's it's neutral and therefore you need something else among yourselves on the one hand. On the other hand, the neutrality looks at whatever you put in there and pushes back against it, right? Insofar as it has bearing on your soul. So, you know, this is, you know, you, you know, you talk about, you know, finding meaning in your community. I mean, look at some of the decayed forms of religiosity, right, in this country. I mean, I hear people spout some crazy religious views, by which I don't mean extreme views, but remarkably defanged and 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 sort of I mean, it's just it's just religion through a liberal. It's liberalism with a religious lens on it, right? It, it you know, it, you know, they have a cross, right? But nothing of what they do is has really much to do with the church, right? Or, I mean, the greatest caricature of this is like Unitarianism, and then this goes hand in hand, I think, with sort of you know reactionary forms of religion, right? Um, where you see people adopting it almost as a kind of you know social movement or a rebellion, and not out of any sort of intrinsic sort of attachment to this, uh, you know, the religion, whatever religion they're practicing. So, I mean, it, on the one hand, I, I do agree with you. you. You can do that. On the other hand, there's every pressure not to, right? Every pressure to to force you to hide your religious views because you, you're you running a, a, 
you know, a foul of, of the, you know, reigning orthodoxy and therefore a sort of, uh, enforced, you know, um, kind of, um, wishy-washiness to your religion. That makes sense. Do you think there is an alternative to, uh, you know, liberalism, like, you know, to speak of the future that, that is like, uh, more charismatic or compelling at some level? Is there some way or are we forced to, uh, you know, like just abandon it in the, over the long term? I have no idea. I'm not, incl- I'm not one of these. I think some people think this, but I, I'm not one of these anti-liberal thinkers. I just think you have, you have to be deeply critical of it. Otherwise it's going, to, you're going to end up where we are. Right. I mean, it's, it's only by being critical of the reigning orthodoxy, right. That you're going to have some kind of healthy alternative to it. Otherwise you go too far. Right. And you, you end up just sort of, you know, especially when you have a very flexible society like ours, right. Where the laws are constantly changing and, and people are, are, are brought up to fight for something, right? You have to fight for your bit of progress, right? Well, what happens when you, what happens when things are pretty good, right? I mean, things are pretty good, right? We, we have great comfort and, and, you know, you know, my criticisms earlier, we have great comfort and things are, are pretty good. Why the hell is everybody so up in arms all the time? And, you know, there are, there are problems, not to say that there are problems, but there's a real lack of, of historical awareness of how things used to be in this country, to say nothing of in human history, right? The massive expenditures of life, the way that disease used to really ravage us. I mean, it's, you have untold of opportunities to pursue your, you know, happiness as you understand it and we don't do it, right? And, and so there's, there's a, when you have that kind of that motivation to find something to change, if nothing readily prevents it presents itself, you're gonna you're gonna go after it, right? And you're gonna go try to find it, and that needs to be somehow tempered, right? Um, I mean, you know, I, I personally think that you know the civil rights era, which was such an important time in this country for actual progress, like real social progress. One of the negative after effects of that is that you know the court thinks that it ought to be ahead of the game on everything just because of Brown v. Board of Education. Well, we did it right then. Let's do it again. And that's how you got, you know, uh, Roe and, and Griswold, all these these court cases that never really sort of stopped being an issue, right? Um, we have somehow gotten ourselves into this habit that we need to find new civil rights issues, new sort of frontiers, but we don't really know what they are anymore. And so what you often see is the same, I'm sure you guys are used to this, the same repeated fight, the same repeated claims of persecution and oppression, even as untold of acceptance and untold, you know, unprecedented acceptance, unprecedented support from the political sphere, unprecedented support from like corporate America, as everything gets more and more supporting, you, you, you hear people speak as though it's, they've never been worse, right? And why? Because they need progress, right? That's an insidious cause of unhappiness, a failure to appreciate the good before you because you're always looking towards the good, the, you know, unachieved good of the future. Um, it's not a healthy way to live, right? You mentioned a couple times, you know, the integralists and the anti-liberals, you know, and it's interesting that you're distinguishing carefully your position from theirs. Um, I, I've noticed that there's a tendency in both defenders of liberalism and um uh the anti-liberals to sort of paint it as if it's this one single tradition 
and, you know, grouping together sort of the rationalists like John Stuart Mill or Kant, you know, with people who had a much more nuanced perspective um, on um, liberalism and human nature, such as, you know, Adam Smith, David Hume, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, you know, for example. So or even Friedrich Hayek, I, I would put in that boat. So, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, part of, um, you know, taking a more skeptical look at liberalism, you know, also would involve, um, you know, going back to some of these figures who themselves were liberals, but also at the same time had a more nuanced view of modernity and progress. Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely the case. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you, you have to be, these are, these are dangerous times. There's obviously a crisis and you need to think about it, right? But the stakes are incredibly high, right? I mean, I, you know, I see this with, uh, like, for instance, Patrick Deneen's book, right? A lot of interesting, good points about liberalism. It's wholly negative. Nothing positive. That, that's an irresponsible way to write, in my opinion, right? And not to say that Deneen is not an irresponsible person in his own thinking, but you know, he has influence. This book is, was very, very popular. It's, you know, it's, you know, made the rounds and, but, you know, now part of this has to do with, to go with like the Catholic uh, sort of critics of, of liberalism, you know, they have in mind a, a pretty clear sense of the good that's being lost, right? And it's a good that comes through Holy Scripture, right? And that's not something you can really fully argue for, right? You can make the case for it to a certain extent, but it's a matter of faith, right? And and so I can see their reluctance. I, I, I think, you know, revisiting the history of political philosophy, creating great sympathy for people like Mill, right? I mean, Mill tries in many ways to create a hybrid between, you could say, Aristotle and, and utilitarianism, right? Where you look at, at uh, you know, he has a, he's a trying to adapt a kind of Socratism to you know, progress in on liberty. Um, you know, it doesn't work and, and the defects are interesting, but there is an attempt to sort of restore it to say nothing of figures like Rousseau. But, you know, a lot of these people will look at Rousseau and say, well, he's just like a proto-communist or something, which is a, a gross misunderstanding of a man whose thought you can learn quite a bit from in, in, in what he sees as the degrading effects of early modern, modern thought. Um, you know, a failure to do that, right, is is a failure to live up to the crisis that your present day faces you with, you know, and and that requires an extra labor on your part. I mean, if I can just, in, I'll, I'll put a somewhat personal note on here. I mean, my interest in these questions really, you know, began, I, I mean, I was mostly interested in, in sort of ancient thought from the perspective of reason and revelation. A lot of that had to do with the fact that, you know, the you know, Strauss's thought in particular, Leo Strauss's thought in particular, seemed like a remarkably helpful way of understanding what happened on 9-11, right? Why, you know, radical Islamic thinkers could look at the modern world and say no, right? And and trying to understand the point that they had, right? What they were appealing to. And fine. And then, you know, you get, you know, the Bush years, the Obama years, and then you get Trump, right? And And then all of a sudden, you're facing a different issue, Right. And you, you start to realize that these these questions, you have to go start looking into this history because you're not going to understand it otherwise. Right. You're not going to be able to. 
I think as far as liberalism is concerned, it's very difficult for us to look at somebody like, you know, Osama bin Laden and say, well, we just say he's a zealot. That's it, right? Why can't he be more tolerant, right? That's a wholly inadequate understanding of, of, of what exactly he has in mind, you know, had in mind, you know, when he did what he did. Right. Or what other sort of reactionary Islamic thinkers like Saeed Qutub, right? When you look at him and then you start digging in the history of Islam, you can see all sorts of interesting debates, right? Going back to, you know, I, a guy I consider a kind of proto Qutub, which is, you know, Al Ghazali and Averis, their debates and, and what's going on there. I mean, you realize there, there are actually real questions here that you need to, if you're even going to remain a conscientious liberal, right? That you need to somewhat take seriously if you're going to be thinking about these things, right? And, and not every person can think about it, right? But this, these are where these ideas are, are turned into policies or are, are turned into the way that we envision our task. And a failure to do that is a failure to confront these, these moments. Yeah, I'm glad you, you mentioned the role of Islamic philosophy here, because I think that this is one of the big, one of the biggest weaknesses of modern defenders of liberalism, broadly understood, is they tend to exclusively identify it with modern Western Europe, you know, usually referring to like Western civilization, right? And there are reasons for that. But what that really overlooks is this, you know, this deeper history of it was actually like what we think of as Western civilization was actually a product of an interaction between multiple different civilizations, the Islamic world, obviously, not just Al-Ghazali and uh, Ibn Rushd, you know, Averroes, but, you know, Avicenna, um, Ibn Khaldun, you know, there are so many um, uh, thinkers from that period, both in science and in philosophy, who are immensely influential in the development of the West um, afterwards. And if we ignore that tradition, and just make it seem like this is, oh, yeah, this is all just stuff that some white guys in Europe came up with about 300 years ago out of nothing. And it's great. And we have to keep doing it. You're actually feeding into the criticism of liberalism, right? Because the criticism of liberalism is that it's Eurocentric and it's, you know, oh, that might work for some, you know, like European white guys, but for everyone else, it's a disaster. So it ignorance of this history and ignorance of these thinkers is actually probably one of the biggest weaknesses that liberalism now has. Yeah, I mean, it's it's precisely the faith in progress that makes you say, I don't need to look at these old books, right? Well, how old? 2,500 years? I mean, I mean, 50 years ago, like, I mean, we didn't even know about computers and things like that. Like, how stupid are these guys, right? So you don't even think about it, right? But I mean, I mean, so I to take the great example here, I think is is Spinoza, right? If you go to Spinoza, I'm in a way I'm going to just steal Strauss's own inquiries from the 20s into the 30s and 40s. But you look at Spinoza; he founded the freedom to philosophize on the base of liberal democracy. That was his sort of task. And this was a completely different approach to the freedom to philosophize than you find in Maimonides. And if you go to Maimonides, he's looking back, and you go back to Averroes, right? He's securing, again, the freedom to philosophize, but on religious grounds, yeah, over and against the criticisms of people like Al-Ghazali, calling him a crypt, calling, you know, his, his uh, forerunners a crypto-Muslim, and going back to Farabi. And you start, you start pulling this thread, and you realize, oh, we have a particular approach 
to a basic problem, which is how do you secure the freedom to think, right? And the freedom to reflect on your own good. We've made it a political and social project, and that has come with certain problems, right? I think the chief one of them being, right, that we automatically vulgarize anything that's an actual scientific achievement, and that has its own sort of effects. For, you know, pre-modern thinkers, right, the attempt was to secure it over and against the resistance of religion. And while you didn't get the vulgarization, you obviously got the overly religious interpretation of philosophy and of science, right? And you also got this, this extreme reaction to any kind of free thinking, right? Or any kind of uh, open questioning, right? Um, I mean, now, the, your point about, you know, dead white men thing, right? I mean, this is where when you really trace the tradition back to its root in Socrates, it's, it's, I think it's absolutely properly understood. It's almost impossible to overcome the Socratic position, precisely because it consists of almost nothing but open questioning, right? You know, there are certain objections you can raise, but the idea that this tradition is monolithic is a mistake, right? Because it's precisely at its core, it's composed of this desire to fundamentally question our opinions, right? And and so there's it's very hard to think of a tradition more all-encompassing, more all-embracing, um, you know, than the West has been. Right? That's why, you know, the dialogues of Plato find themselves find themselves in the, the Middle East and you get a renaissance, right? I mean, this is this is what happens when you take books like these and thinking like this. It, it'll have this effect. As long as it can be read, it'll have this effect anywhere. As long as it can be read and as long as people read it, right? Like now we have this <laughs> paradox where we have so much media and like people are just entirely occupying themselves with, I don't know, TikTok videos. And, you know, it's like every single second you spend doing something like that. And I'm as guilty as anyone. Like you could be, you could have been reading Xenophon, right? Like you could have been doing something much better with your time. Right. And um, yeah, I mean, no, I mean, I have, I'm just, I'm just changing offices. And I just put all my Greek books and I always talk about this, how, uh, you know, you have these manuscripts that used to have to be copied by hand are now printed and you can buy them anywhere and you can get them in almost any, you know, you know, library. They, they're going to have something and, and you can even get the original sources carefully edited and everything. They're available and nobody wants it, right? No, nobody. Now, I, I don't know. Statistically, do more people want it now than before? I have no idea. But I mean, it's it's so readily available and yet everything in our culture is pushing, as you said, like towards TikTok, right? You know, uh, you know, so maybe I should just start like, you know, a TikTok. This is one of the reasons I like I like Twitter. I mean, I find that if I go on Twitter, I can have an actual conversation. I can put out a quote, put out a thought. You can inject a, a little bit of thinking into this incredibly volatile medium and meet people, talk with them. And, and same thing with, you know, the podcast I do, you know, there's... You just there's a way that you can connect to people, small group, but they're out there, right? And 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 you can use these media. Otherwise, it's just only degrading, right? And only, only a negative influence. I want to I want to talk a little bit uh, in the last couple of minutes about Strauss, actually. Um, and I I want to understand from you uh, what do, what do you find interesting about uh, Leo Strauss? It's to me the fact that uh, you know I, I get this idea that okay, uh, and I'm not as well read as you are by any stretch. 
But I get this idea from Strauss that, okay, when, when we go back and read these books, we have to understand that everyone writes under a certain set of social conditions. Uh, they've got their own Overton window to deal with, and there's certain things they can't talk about. And so we should try and extrapolate out from there. And, you know, even in recording this podcast, like I know this is true, there's certain things like, you know, you, you don't talk about or you can't quite cover or things like that because of the Overton window you you um, exist in. Um but my question is, is, is what do you do with that? Like, I, this is an interesting point. And I think this is a, this is a, a good thing to recognize, but, but what is one supposed to do with that when you have that kind of knowledge? Um, well, I think, I think, well, so to, to make it sort of simple, I mean, so there's a kind of, there's a, there's a social constraint, right? You're not allowed to say certain things, obviously, but there's also, I think for Strauss, an almost sort of natural constraint, which is that it's not clear that you can solve these questions simply. Right now, that's he. He makes a number of remarks. I spent all summer working on this, and he makes a number of really interesting remarks about, uh, you know, the basic presuppositions or his his sort of hypothetical basis to his own activity. And it is, you know, there's a lot of talk about the riddle of being or the mystery of the whole or you know fundamental problems, and you have to kind of figure out how these different ideas are operating in in his text rhetorically and philosophically. But I'll just. To put it simply, I think for Strauss, he understood that modern progress had made us insensitive to certain fundamental questions or problems, right? And it's made us have absolute faith that we can devise solutions. And this, while it's it's great and it's optimistic, and on a certain level, you have to believe you can solve a question to try to actually understand it, right? You have to take the solution seriously as possible solutions when you read different philosophers or you study different ways of life on the one hand on the other hand the humility that comes with understanding something of these great thinkers there are really good reasons for writing the way they did for proposing the ideas the fact that they're they're what they taught and what they thought are on on different levels it has a deeply moderating effect right and not just uh um philosophically as an individual but i think he thought also politically I think this is one of the reasons he pushed back against liberalism and one of the reasons he he pushed for this these question these this idea of fundamental problems right or fundamental questions or certain solutions that are coeval and they can't be sort of resolved is that he understood that if this could take some kind of root in academia it might not take over the whole thing but it might create a sort of healthy skepticism about what we can know and what knowledge can accomplish. And that would be a benefit not just for um, for your own growing. It could be a benefit for the regime and for the West uh, more generally. One, If I can just go on to one point, this is something I wanted to talk about along the way. Yeah, but I think you know, obviously yeah. these questions are so rich, we went in all different directions. The fund, one of the fundamental texts that I've actually relied on quite a bit is this discussion in the Theotetus of trying to know your own good. And, and this is over and against a relativistic argument, you know, that Protagoras, Socrates is reviving this, but sort of Protagorean argument against your ability, this sort of relativistic argument that, well, what's good for you and what's good for me? It's a matter of, no, it's not just a matter of what appears to you. There are, there's a difference between apparent goods and real goods. And you know this from experience because you tell yourself it's going to be a great idea for me to do this. And then it turns out to suck, right? This movie is going to be great. And you're completely disappointed. There's an experientially. Now, the difficulty here 
is that when Socrates goes to try to establish knowledge of the good, uh, I don't know, right? that's, that's difficult. You can know it negatively through mistakes. If that, as a hypothesis, just put it out, if the way you know your good is through mistakes, and right now we are pursuing the good of knowledge without any kind, right? We're relying on, to go back to the sort of systemic idea that we've been talking about, we're relying on systems, right? They're, they're informing our lives and our actions, right? And we're unreflectively going after them. There's a lot of mistakes to be made, right? And this is where I like to look at Descartes here, or Bacon has a similar idea, but the idea that you should understand the world as wax that can be formed, right? That can have attributes added to it. That's a remarkable analogy, a really powerful analogy for human creativity and the ability to form our future. This is progress, right? It's ours to be shaped. Well, it, it doesn't take long of Googling like plastic surgery disasters to see what kind of you know, the attempts to shape our own reality, what kind of, you know, horrors that can give birth to, to the eye, to say nothing of the horrors of the soul and the horrors of of the body, right? Human life being sort of uh, formed in, in, in this way. And so taking seriously that there might be some kind of standard, right? Or natural sort of standard by which to judge something as good or bad, right? Or just, and that standard might be something as thin alone as, all we know is that we make mistakes. That kind of humility, knowing that you, you might not know more than that, will make us way more judicious in how we pursue science and technology and how we pursue progress. And ask for humility. That's good. That's really good. Um, Russ, did you have any last questions for Alex? Yeah. Um, I actually wanted to answer your, your question, too, because I have, I have my own little take on it, which is that I don't, I don't even – I'm not convinced that it's actually even possible – at least for a beginner, to read Plato or Aristotle or people like that without sort of a Straussian understanding. Because if you start to read Plato, the first thing you notice is he says things that seem, or, or you know, Socrates, for example, might say things that are obviously we know, now know to be wrong, or he contradicts himself. Right. And if you come into it like I did with the mindset of, you know, you know, I, for my professional career, I'm always looking for flaws in people's arguments. Right. And, and exploiting them. So so then I, you know, I immediately read it and I think, oh, ah, caught you, Plato. <laughs> you know, like I'm smarter than you. What an idiot you are. You know, and it's it closes your mind to the idea that maybe he has something to teach you. Right. So it's only if you come into it with the awareness and the openness that it's possible that there's a rhetorical purpose or it's possible that there's a reason for this contradiction or a reason that he overlooked this obvious counter argument. It's only once you come into it with that, that understanding or that, at least that possibility in your mind that you can really appreciate these authors. So it, it, when I actually entirely found Alex's work in the Straussians in general by accident because I was just reading Plato and Aristotle and trying to understand them. And it turns out if you if you look for commentators from Plato and Aristotle, it's inevitable you're going to run into the Straussians, right? And um, you know they they really improve my ability to read and enjoy um, these texts. Um, so that's my understanding. Thank you. Of the Thank purpose you. of Strauss. Yeah, and I think yeah, yeah and I mean the Strauss's sort of basic hermeneutical observation is like, look, we all know these books have contradictions, right? Certain things don't make sense, right? You got two choices here. Either Plato was like just a straight up moron <laughs> at certain points, 
Or there's some deliberate... And now, with Plato, it's great because you have the whole dramatic setting. And then also, Socrates, you, you'll start to be like, can he mean this? And he, and then he'll say, like, a page later, like, yeah, the only thing I mean is this, really, right? And the rest is whatever. Like, this is good for... You, you start to realize, oh, wow, everything is really cagey and qualified. You know, Strauss is, I think, most persuasive with Plato precisely because of the dramatic stuff. I mean, his his readings of, like, Maimonides and Spinoza really rub people the wrong way, some, certain people, for that other reason right but he i think he's just kind of in a way pragmatic it's like come on you know and if you read other other commentators who are not stressing at some point they will all admit it they they'll at the point like well i think he just said this because of whatever like descartes like, i don't really think he believed come on right like he's obviously concerned or you know and so you have a you start to realize oh well everybody kind of admits it a little bit Strauss's distinctiveness was to think that sort of admission to its basic presuppositions, right? And think, well, what would the what would the world have to be for this to always be something people have to do? And and he took that and he and he thematized that and made that more explicit than maybe anybody ever has, even than Plato, right? Where you don't you get these certain metaphysical statements about this, but they're very much in in passing. Right. Makes sense. And, and, and just to, to wrap things up, or I'm going to try to, um, if it's the case that it's sort of an internal condition of, of humanity, that there will always be a difference between what's stated or what's written and the reality, you know, between theory and practice, then that's an inherent dilemma for the modern project of progress, right? Which is all about trying to make reality correspond to the text. Right. And um, it, it's just probably not going to work the way we expect it to. Not at all. And this is where, you know, the role of the science communicator is one of the biggest concessions that modernity <laughs> has made to antiquity. We need rhetoricians. I need a rhetorician. I need, you know, what do we do to get people to take a vax? Call it a Fauci ouchie. Then people really be into it. Right. Like that's that's a massive concession to the fact that there are distinct types of people, right? And that you need rhetoric to relate from wisdom to unwisdom. And that, that's just, you know, that's a, a very kind of canned version of, you know, ancient understanding of different human types, you know, which again, has its own sort of questions and problems, but right, that's that's admitting something about the nature of political life that that's not modern. That's great, that's great. Well, Alex, Thank you so much for for coming on the show today. Where can people find you? Where should we send them? So send them. Uh, all right. The New Thinkery is my podcast. I do it with uh, my very old friend, Greg McBrayer, and my very fat friend, David Barr. And uh, <laughs> go check us out, The New Thinkery. It's just thinker with a Y on the end. Uh, we're on Twitter and check out the podcast. I'm also on Twitter, Alex Priu, P-R-I-O-U. Uh, you'll find me on there if you look at The New Thinkery. But uh yeah, I mean that's that's the thing that I'm I'm very proud of the podcast. I think it's great to talk with my friends and to share it. Um and and um it just uh to hear that people get something out of it is always a shock because you just kind of do it and send it into space and then I mean you'll see statistics, you're like, oh, this many people listen, and then you get an email every now and then you're like, Wow, this is wonderful. So if you like any of this stuff, this is what I do, except you know, we make sort of dirty jokes a lot and probably a little too much than is professionally wise and and uh yeah, it's great. And I think your listeners should know, Will, that you have a uh, the whole time he's had this just lovely smile across his face. <laughs> 
which is a little bit disconcerting because I don't know if I've said anything to offend him, but you know, <laughs> not, a, not enough, right? You, 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 you shouldn't be doing podcasts. Yeah. You should be on TV. That's, that's a <laughs> hell of a grin you got there. Appreciate that, Alex. Thanks so much. Well, it's been great talking to you. Likewise. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.